Father, we come before you this morning, and you truly are our vision. You are the Lord of all. You are the one who holds us fast. You are the God who makes all things new. Thank you for the truths of these songs. Thank you for these men who work diligently to not only prepare, uh, but who work hard to present um, and lead us in song. Lord, thank you for these songs of, of praise to you and reminders of our faith. Would you help us, Lord, in this service as we continue to worship you, not just in song, but in prayer, in a few moments in your word, and then, uh, Lord, as we uh, give and as we fellowship, Lord, that you would continue to uh, work in our hearts um, through uh, your dear Son and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Father, we don't just lift up for ourselves, but other churches. We think of uh, Cornerstone Fellowship, Lord, here in Jefferson, that you would uh, be with them, that you would continue to strengthen them and encourage them. Father, thank you for other churches in this area, that we are not alone in the gospel ministry. And while there's certainly differences um, of, of just culture in each church, Lord, we know that you are working your same uh, work in all of us, in sanctifying us and making us mouthpieces for the gospel. Lord, we pray for other churches in our network, in the Reformed Baptist Network. We lift up Covenant Baptist up in Ontario, Canada, that you'd be with them. Uh, encourage them, Father. Give them strength uh, to uh, stand for the faith in that area of North America, that you would provide for them, bring many fruits from their labors. Lord, that you would encourage them, that you would um, uh, keep the enemy at bay as they seek to um, just continually carry your banner, Lord, in Ontario. Father, we lift up the persecuted church. We uh, ask that you would be um, specifically with the uh, South Pacific. And Lord, we think of Indonesia and other nations around there where they are persecuted for your faith. Or, and, and I just pray that you would um, bless them and keep them, Lord, that you would help them as we're called to pray as if we're in chains with them. Father, that they would have a song in their heart, those who are imprisoned this day, uh, and those who are facing death, Lord, that you would give them boldness to finish well. And while we pray those things, it seems foreign to us here. Help us to use our freedoms that they would so long for, for the furtherance of um, the gospel, Lord, and help us to be quickened in mind and heart, to be sober in spirit, that we might... Um, with great faith, see your gospel spread. Father, we pray for unreached people groups. We think of the people of Morocco uh, this morning, that you would bring uh, grace to them uh, through uh, missionaries and through the local church there, that, Father, you would uh, bring the gospel to these unreached areas of that country. And, Lord, that the gospel would go forth, that the Bible would be printed into uh, other languages there in um, multiple places, uh, even down to the uh, west coast of Africa, Lord, that you would work and strengthen um, missionaries there and their work there in the local church there. Father, we pray for all the conflicts in various places around the world. We think of uh, Israel and uh, all that's going on uh, with their battle with Hamas. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would uh, show your grace and mercy to uh, refugees and to those who have been marginalized by war. Uh, thank you for uh, the 
seemingly uh, peaceful transition uh, of those who've been taken captive, that uh, you would just continue to work there. And while there's much to be prayed for on both sides, we know that uh, many need you and that uh, you would call them to faith and repentance, that you would uh, give us the, uh, the blessing of hearing of lives that are saved and people that have come to know you through this conflict. We pray the same for Ukraine and uh, those in Russia, that you would be with those as the holidays hit and how hard it must be to have lost loved ones to war. Um, and I pray that you would be with the church in Ukraine and the church in Russia, that they would uh, seek to love one another and uh, care for their communities in the midst of a uh, continuing uh, political fight. Lord, we pray for our own military, that you'd be with them in various places. We know that uh, our own military has been attacked in various and sundry ways overseas, that you would give our military leaders wisdom, you'd give our president wisdom in uh, all things. Uh, we pray for uh, our governing leaders uh, that are fearing you, that, Lord, that they would trust you, and, Lord, that, that you would use them as mouthpieces for your gospel. Those who don't know you, Lord, that they would come to faith in you, we pray that you would help them, Lord. We pray for the many that are grieving, Lord, this time of year as they miss their loved ones that have gone on to glory, that you would be with them, that you would aid them as their hearts ache, and you are the only one that can comfort them truly. And so we ask for your help there. Father, we pray for um, our expectant mothers. We uh, think of Whitney, Lord. We pray that you would be with her and uh, be with this um, child in her womb, Lord, that you would... Uh, uh, just continue to give her health, Lord, this pregnancy, uh, even as the family is sick this week, that you would give them strength, we pray. Father, for Sarah uh, Foster, Lord, we thank you for her and for her baby, that you would be uh, with this child as you put this child together, that, Lord, um, you would um, help this pregnancy to go healthily, and, Lord, that there would be a great growth um, and a, a great delivery um, months from now. Father, we pray uh, for those who are healing. We think of Sarah Furches, Lord, as she heals um, from giving birth to Ruby May. We pray for uh, Ruby May to grow in strength uh, and in your grace, Lord. We pray for the Furches family, that you would give them um, just great, a great holiday season um, with this precious baby. And Lord, that you would help Ruby May to trust you at a young age as she is bathed uh, in your word and in the gospel through not just their family, but uh, their church family here. Father, we pray for Christina Graybill, Lord, not just for healing, but Lord, for her strength, Lord, as she goes uh, for surgery this week, that you would give her and Paul grace, Lord. Uh, we pray for your strength. Um, give wisdom to the doctors. Um, be with Christina. Help her to know your presence. Father, we pray for Dean Mundy and others that are sick. Lord, we pray that you would bring healing to them. Many are under the weather with this uh, upper respiratory stuff, that you would help that to clear, give them great uh, rest uh, this weekend, and give them strength, we pray. Lift up uh, my friend Ryan D'Amato, Lord, that you would continue to show grace to Kim and to him. Lord, would you be so kind as to uh, relieve his suffering and uh, but accomplish your purposes at the same time. I pray for his brother Jeremy and um, wife Heather as well, and others that are uh, in the immediate family, that you would uh, provide support as you have through their church and 
uh, continue to encourage them. Father, we pray for John Cordy and Bethana, his wife, as he continues to battle esophageal cancer. We thank you that um, the, the treatment is working and that scans are clear. We just praise you for that. Uh, give him great strength, Lord, as he finishes that up and seeks to put his mind back towards ministry uh, with uh, the Native Americans there. Father, we pray for Joe Morris as he has back surgery coming up this month, that you would give him wisdom, the doctor's wisdom, and give him uh, grace as he um, approaches that date. And uh, Lord, that you would help the healing to be quick um, as he has surgery right before Christmas. Father, be with those traveling still, uh, coming back from the holiday weekend. Uh, Lord, would you give them grace and safety? We thank you and don't take for granted uh, the many uh, miraculous times that you uh, take us from point A to point B uh, without incident. And we uh, know that that is a kindness from you. Father, help Christ alone as well. Uh, be with Paul as he preaches down there this morning. And be with Tim and Cindy, Lord, as they spend time with family in Florida, that you would give them a great rest. Uh, Father, be with that precious congregation, Lord, as they go into their second year in just over a month from now. Uh, would you show them grace and give them help uh, in, in the days ahead, bring more leadership, and uh, Lord, help them to be established firmly. We uh, thank you for them and we lift them to you. Help us now, Lord, as we look at your word, would you be glorified in not just our reading and understanding of it, but our obedience to it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. I trust that you all had a great Thanksgiving and uh, that you are doing well in the Lord and your families are uh, doing well, even though I hear that there's sickness going around that's uh, for the season. And um, uh, so hopefully um, you had a great Thanksgiving and did not eat too much um, and that you are doing well. Uh, I, as promised, want to pick back up with our children's bulletins um, and... Uh, I was surprised by the first one, but uh, I promised to read these, so uh, even though this brings much shame to myself, um, I promised I would. And the question, first one uh, from uh, this was, uh, why didn't Abraham, um, or excuse me, the first, I read the second one first, first one is, why uh, don't you ask women their age? So uh, us preachers have to be careful what we say, even by illustration or in a joking manner. The Bible surely doesn't say that, but it's something that um, is, is common as impolite to ask a woman their age. And I will refer you to your parents on that one, who are welcome to call me and run me down if they would like. But I think that in the context of that, I did make a joke about that because Sarah's age was 127 and so I was making light of the fact that, um, that we don't often do this in our culture of asking women their age. But it's interesting that Sarah is the only woman in all of Scripture who is mentioned how old she was. So just a small Bible fact that should leave us in awe that talking about age isn't necessarily wrong, but it also speaks of Sarah being somewhat the matriarch of the faith as Abraham is seen as the patriarch of the faith because Peter, as I quoted in the sermon last uh, uh, week, is that we are called her children if we are not fearing anything that is fearful and we have that same kind of faith as her and Abraham had. So great question, um, but yes, it's somewhat impolite to ask a woman her age and you women are welcome to give me more uh, answers to that question in uh, the days ahead. Second question, why uh, didn't you... Uh, excuse me. 
that one. Um, second one was, <clears throat> sorry, my throat is bad this morning. Why didn't Abraham bury Sarah in his own land? Excellent question. In fact, that hits at the very heart of the passage last week. Why didn't Abraham bury Sarah in his own land? Well, if you remember right, God called Abraham out of the land to what would be eventually the promised land, the land of Canaan. And when he went there and God uh, uh, showed the way, when he went there, he knew that him and his future generations would inherit that land. And so one of the ways that we talked about in the sermon last week is that Abraham, by faith, buried Sarah there, knowing that they would inherit the land. He actually purchased a piece of land that was ultimately going to be his by promise. In a similar way, we're called to live by faith in what we know will be our everlasting joy, our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he buried Sarah because he knew that he would eventually live there and his posterity would live there, his future children, and they would all be um, buried there. We'll see that in the days ahead. In fact, um, maybe in as early as two weeks, we'll see uh, that Abraham himself is buried on that plot, let alone his uh, son and his wife and so on and so forth. And so that's a great question. But he did that by faith. He didn't send uh, his wife back to where he was from because of the fact that he needed uh, that. Thank you, brother, uh, for the, um, the, the purpose of uh, faith. So good, good questions, guys. All right. Uh, that is it for those. If you would turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24. And in your bulletins, it might say 1 through 14. I made some last-minute corrections late in the week. Um, so that is not um, uh, the bulletin's fault. That's my fault. Um, that we're just going to look at verses 1 through 9 this morning. And I want to spend some time looking at uh, Abraham's servant here next week as he prays in faith that God would uh, lead him in the right uh, direction there. Uh, so we will break this into several um, pieces of in, in uh, Genesis 24 here. Would you stand as we read God's word together? This is the word of the Lord. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred, and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. 
only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. You had to put a title on this passage. It might be trusting God with the details of life. Have we not seen this in the context of Abraham's life? That he was learning to trust God in the details? I I find it moving how often that Abraham struggled through multiple issues in his life, but perhaps the reason that Abraham is seen as the example of faith in both Old and New Testament in a human form is because it follows his life and all the different struggles, even to minute details. If you considered uh, all that he has gone through in coming out of the land uh, of Ur of the Chaldees, to this land um, to trust God in that by faith, to trust God with the promise that he would be the father of many nations, that he would have a promised son, even though it took many, many years to see that come to fruition. And then to see his own nephew kidnapped and these five kings and what that must have felt like to think he was powerless against that and yet God gave him victory over these five kings and he gained great Uh, admiration from the surrounding Canaanite tribes to his faith in the midst of going to Egypt or before Abimelech when he lied about his wife and his uh, that that she was his sister to the struggle of trusting God with Isaac that even though he was the promised son that he was being asked back by the Lord and he was not willing or was willing to give him back and not willing to disobey the Lord, but to give him right back and even to the point of raising his dagger to sacrifice his own son for the God who had called him out. And he did. Sought to do this and God delivered him and gave uh, a ram in its place. We also see in the context of the book of Genesis how uh, God led him in the midst of even his own wife's death. And even then was an opportunity for faith as we saw last week. And now, as he is preparing for the end of his life, this is where our text comes from. I'm going to move very quickly through this passage, but I do have six points. And really, this is ways that God was challenging Abraham in faith uh, in this period of his life that are instructive to us. First of all, we see here uh, at the beginning of uh, this text is Abraham was old. I think it's interesting here that the scriptures define when someone is old. And uh, so if you think you're old, uh, you are not right unless God says you are old. And in this text, it's saying that Abraham was old. And we'll see he lives a little bit longer than his wife. Of course, if you look and chart these out, if you ever want to do something, if you're a numbers person, Go back to Genesis 9 onward, and you see how people's age started to decline after the flood. That's very important to note, because we do have Methuselah, who lived 900-some-odd years, and that's even under the sinful curse. It's incredible how God put our bodies together. And so while we think in the modern age that we're living longer, we're not. So that's just a 
uh, a figment of our imagination. Now, it is true of modern science, we're living a little bit longer, but we've seen this, this uh, trajectory downward after the fall. But it does say that Abraham was old, and he's well advanced in years. And this is important, because we see here the very challenge of Abraham's faith had to do with his aging self. That he, in a, a lot of ways, was trying to put his family in order. And just like all of us, as we grow in our years, we start to tend to look at the younger generation. And if you're a grandparent or a parent in the room, you know how your anxieties start to be less and less tied to you because you know that you're getting old and you don't even want to think about it. You start thinking about your family and your posterity. You think about your legacy. You start thinking about those kinds of things and the anxiety comes upon your heart about what is to come after me. Well, that is very natural. And right here in the text, we see that Abraham cares about his son specifically. Just like all of us, we are concerned about our, our children and notice the in context of the promise that he clearly has gotten from uh, Yahweh that he is going to have to carry on the seed and yet Isaac has not had a wife. Now there's multiple issues here which we'll look at here in this text. But he also wants the right kind of woman. Just who wouldn't want that for their children. But notice that he'll say here that he wants Isaac to stay put and not be tempted in other ways. So let's take a look at this. So it's not just age that is uh, driving this, but ultimately his faith in God's promises. The thoughts or the intents here are based upon what God has already said. And this is under the inspiration of the Spirit why Moses writes uh, Abraham's life in this way, that he is working in his walk with the Lord that he is able to provide. If he's able to provide a land, if he's able to provide a wife, if he's able to provide a promised son, surely God can provide a spouse for my son. And this is rightly so. So we see age here. Then we see the agitation, if you will, or where the rub comes down because there's an issue. And what is this? Well, this happens in the context of a conversation with his senior uh, servant. So let's look at this um, in verse 2. It says, And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your right hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. Now that's a loaded issue there. Notice what he says that he's saying it's to his servant. Now, it doesn't identify who that servant is, but we can assume that it's Eliezer of Damascus. We were introduced to him earlier, and we'll see him after this point, but the scriptures in this particular place do not say that that's him, but it says the oldest, and so it tends to lead us to think of him as the heir. If you remember when they were expecting uh, the promise to be fulfilled, that he thought that Eliezer, uh, Eliezer was going to be uh, his uh, heir. And God says, no, he won't be. I'm going to give a son from your own body. So Abraham was already thinking about future tense even back then, which would have been at this point probably 40, 50 years earlier. So notice he goes to him and he tells him what's on his mind. He's giving him a task to do. 
He had charge of all that he had, so the servant was willing to do whatever Abraham asked. How awesome would it be to have a right-hand person like that? But you would have to, in the midst of all that God had given Abraham to manage, he not only had uh, him and his immediate household, but he was very rich and had multiple servants and was in charge of all kinds of things. But it says here, uh, who had charge of all that he had, he asks him this. He says, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear. So he's speaking to him seriously and he's asking him to make an oath. Now, we might find it weird, the, uh, the actual um, making of this oath. We do not have a historical understanding of why Abraham does it this way or whether it was cultural and why it didn't continue. Many uh, commentators have thought that uh, it was a sign of that, that we were putting under the uh, thigh as far as the very strength of all that one had or the strengths of one's loins or even uh, referring to the covenant of circumcision. We don't really know. But anyway, he's calling him to make this symbol of an oath. Every oath has a sign or a uh, evidence of that oath. And so this is a form that we see here in this text that we don't see in a lot of other places. And we don't, while we don't know the history of it, it is a sign that he would swear. And notice that he's swearing to something specific. Now, when we swear, you might hear children from your parents that we're not um, called to, to swear or use foul language. That's not what it's speaking of here. The swearing is making an oath or a promise to someone, a human-to-human promise. That's different than a vow that we make to God. So those are uh, to the Lord, oaths are to other people. And so look at what he's asking him to swear about. He says, I want you to swear, first of all, by someone. He says, by the Lord God. And notice that he uh, describes uh, God as God, the God of heaven, and the God of earth. It's very interesting. The last time we see in the text of Genesis that Abraham used this very phrase was back after he conquered the five kings. And he spoke this between Melchizedek and the king of Sodom. And he said, by the, the God of heaven and earth, that delivered me, I will not take anything. Remember when he swore that he wouldn't take anything from uh, the king of Sodom. So Abraham's looking to God and he's saying he wants uh, this servant to swear by the God of heaven and the God of earth that you will not, notice the negative, not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. So we know that this was a task that was being given to his lead servant uh, with Sarah's death. Uh, Perhaps she would have been more involved, but in the context of that culture, uh, arranged marriages were very normal, uh, both in pagan form, but also in the beginning of what we would see here of the practice of God's people uh, with Abraham and the first patriarchs. And so Abraham wants him to do this. And the main point is do not take a wife locally. Now, why is this important? Well, for many reasons, but among the most here is that if you remember back in chapter 15, verse 19, remember when he, who he bought the land from to bury Sarah? He bought it from the Hittites. And we went back to chapter 15, verse 19 last week, and we saw this, that not only uh, were these the people living in the land, 
But this is very clearly the land that God was giving Abraham. He says this is the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now, why do I say that? Well, implied there, looking at these other passages, is these are nations that would be under the judgment of God, and God would remove them from the land, and he would give this land to Abraham and his posterity. This was God's plan. This wasn't Abraham's plan. And so God was going to do this. And so those who would be wrestling against God's people are ultimately wrestling against God. And so in the context of this, notice that he does not want him to find a wife from the Canaanites. And why would that be a negative thing? Well, ultimately, because of the very promise of God that he would be a set-apart young man for God and his promises. We also see this redemptive line coming from the faith of Abraham, drawing that all the way to our precious Messiah, whom we're celebrating this month in his birth that God was going to do this not just by faith, but also through a human genealogy. And so the beauty of this passage is that there was a preservation of the seed of Abraham. And in this context, he's wanting his servant to not pick a wife from among these pagan nations. Isn't it interesting? Even in the New Testament, this speaks uh, even to Christians that um, they are not to be unequally yoked. It's interesting that Paul, in the context of um, uh, sexual morality, that he's calling the Corinthians to morality in, in the gospel, he tells them, do not be unequally yoked. In fact, Jesus himself taught on marriage a lot and said that God would give us a spouse and that we were to trust him in that, but we're not to be unequally yoked. Why? Well, in Paul's words in 1 Corinthians, is a yoke, of course, was uh, speaking of an agrarian um, uh, uh, piece of wood that would be put over two laboring animals that would plow fields. And so to be unequally yoked, putting like a strong ox and a donkey together, uh, you're probably going to plow a circle because <laughs> the ox is going to take off and the donkey's not going to do anything. And so you're not going anywhere. You're not accomplishing anything. And so you're not to be unequally yoked, but you're heading in the same direction. And in the context of 1 Corinthians, he's obviously saying that if you are going to connect yourself with unbelievers, you're not going, you're going to be distorted. You're going to be like a, a polluted well, not because they are pure, but ultimately God's work in them and through them was going a far different direction than sinful mankind. And so God calls us to seek after him. A note to you young people who may have this anxiety on your hearts. Who am I going to marry someday? Let me just encourage you not to worry. While that's not the main point of this passage, it's certainly related here, in trusting the Lord in the context of marriage, that God ultimately will bring you a helper for you men, for you young ladies. Pray that God would show you on whom you are to help looking for that character, that looking for that godliness, that someone that loves the Lord. And I pray that God will use this uh, passage to remind you that God is able to do that and sometimes brings you a spouse from somewhere that you had no idea they would come from. My wife often jokes, I had no idea that I would get a spouse from California. 
But see, we see here in the context that he is instructing this to this lead servant to go and find a wife for his son. So these strong convictions of Abraham are well made known. The one thing he's not to do is to find one from there, but we're going to see it goes a little bit deeper. So this is the agitation or the rub in, with Abraham in his old age is that I want my son to have a wife, but he cannot have a wife of the Canaanites. Some of you parents might need to trust the Lord here in this, that often it's an issue of agitation. Maybe a spouse, they've already married a spouse and you, it would have been the one you chose. Um, perhaps you uh, need to trust the Lord in that, that God will bring that to pass in his time and in his way. In the words of Martin Luther, pray and let God do the worrying. And so many times we find ourselves in the context of marriage that decisions are made, and yet in God's providence, he uses even um, what we would find to be sinful marriages that God brings fruit from those. And what we might have meant for evil, God means for good. And so there's multiple applications here in the midst of seeing this here in the text. But notice he goes further in verse 4, as far as this agitation is concerned. He says, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. So he's telling him the not first, don't do this, but do this. Don't, you're tasked with finding a wife for my son. Do not go to the Canaanites, but do go to my kindred. Now, his kindred, of course, were back in Mesopotamia, um, in, uh, to the east of where they were in um, present-day Israel. And so we see here um, an arranged marriage being set up, that this is a way that God is working. I do not think that this solidifies um, a particular way that marriage is done. Uh, some would say it does. I do think that parents ought to be uh, involved in uh, their uh, children's making of one of the biggest decisions of their life uh, in the contract of marriage. It's very interesting reading John Calvin on the issue. He goes off into left field. Uh, just It's hilarious to read, actually. But in his context, I understand why he said it. But he goes so far, as he says, uh, no one should be so foolish as to enter into nuptials, into uh, vows uh, for marriage, uh, without the guidance of their parents. And so this is 15th century, France, Switzerland, so on and so forth, Western Europe, uh, that this was the culture. Or to think that they could do this on their own. Kind of interesting, con contrasted today, is I'll marry whoever I want. Um, and so, in other words, there's a, a sense of guidance and wisdom we ought to be seeking. So if we're connecting that with this passage, let alone our own culture, there's wisdom that is needed in seeking a spouse that is the one that the Lord would have for us. I also think it's important to note here in a passage like this, and we'll look at this more with um, the servant's prayer in the next passage uh, in the weeks ahead, but that when we look at the scriptures, it opens a wide variety of um, freedom there in choosing a spouse. That they would be in the Lord, yes. But when we think about God's providence, he will ultimately bring you to one. But it doesn't tell us to stress over the process of that. But ultimately to trust the Lord, that he will lead and guide. And so that goes in a very pastoral manner to some even of you teenagers that have had um, broken relationships of, of girlfriends or boyfriends 
and yet are still struggling to see how God is working in that. Be encouraged that God is going to work his way even in your romantic life. God will do it. He will provide it. It is a good thing. The world might look at it as a negative thing, but God is good, and he is bringing, he is the creator of marriage and will ultimately arrange yours. So in this, he is considered about this. He's given him two instructions, what not to do, what to do. Now look at the anxiety here about the what ifs. Look at um, his test here that is uh, bothering Abraham, verse 5, and the servant. And this is human reasoning. Look, 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 listen to him. It says, the servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Notice the reasoning in this. Like, wh why do I have to go find a woman for your son? Why don't I just take Isaac with me? Like, why don't he go and pick one out? Like, I get the Canaanite thing, but why don't I take him? And notice this is not what Abraham wants. So the servant is saying, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. And here we have, in the scriptures, two men talking about the willingness of a woman. What if they're already, they don't even know who she is yet, but they're already discussing about whether she's willing to follow him. And notice here, this is a real issue that we'll see is brought into a, uh, an agreement, which we'll see in the following verses. It's a real anxiety. What if she doesn't want to follow? After all, this is kind of crazy, right? You show up on the scene and you say, well, uh, God sent me and uh, I'm uh, here to take you back to uh, your uh, to-be husband. Uh, like, like, how is that going to happen? Uh, in, in our day, uh, most dads would say, uh, you're not hearing from the Lord. Uh, you are not welcome in my home and you can go away. And that, that would be the answer. But notice that he's on this, what seems to be an impossible task, humanly speaking, that God is going to ultimately bring a solution. So he asks this question in the form of, should I take him back then? Look at Abraham's answer in verse 6. He says, see to it that you do not take my son back there. So here's a little more revelation of what Abraham's intent is. Do not get her from the Canaanites. Do get him from my people. Do not take him back there. So it's not just what the task is, but how the task is to be done. So why is this? Well, perhaps there, was there would be a temptation for Isaac to stay. In our walks of faith, isn't it difficult to sometime return to the good old days? To places where we feel comfortable? I know when Bonnie and I first moved here to Ash County, we did not feel at home. We, this was a new place. It was new uncharted territory that God was seeming to lead us into, a field that was uh, completely bare. And we were calling, being called to start uh, uh, taking this on. And yet God is the one who gives us not just the what to do, but how to do it. And so in the context here, we see that he wants this specifically done. And the Lord is leading this whole way. And notice he now talks about God himself and what God has brought as his assurance. So this is our fourth point. Look at Abraham's assurance. He says, the Lord. And in most of your Bibles, it should be capitalized L-O-R-D there. That is a covenant name, Yahweh. In other words, the God who promised me, the God who makes covenants, the God of heaven. 
who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son there. Listen to Abraham's faith. I don't know if you missed it, but there's several minor points here under assurance. And they all start with S here in the text. Um, notice he, he uh, who took me. He, he sent Abraham to what is now the land of Canaan. And then at the end of verse 7, who spoke to him. God is the one who speaks. He is not silent. Church, he speaks to us through his word and by his spirit. And he makes known to us his will and his promises. Then notice, he swore to him. In other words, it's a recitation of the promise of God from chapter 15. He says, to your offspring, I will give this land. In other words, Abraham's decision in how he's going to find a wife for his son is not uh, separated from his faith. In other words, his actions and the details of life are inextricably tied to his ultimate faith in the Lord who promised. That's a huge point of application for us. There is not a small decision in your life that should not come under the sovereign, faith-filled care of our God. He loves to hear about the details of your life. My own father-in-law has taught my children in many ways as a grandfather to uh, many, many grandchildren when they lose something to pray about it. And it seems like a small thing, but it's really a huge lesson of faith that God cares about the details of your life when you're in a predicament. John and I, over the years, have worked on vehicles and dropped a wrench into the middle of the engine and said, oh, God, help us. And he does. He helps us get the wrench back. And it's, it's awesome to see that in the context of the details of our life, God cares about that. He knows that it's frustrating when the lawnmower won't start. He knows when you turn the key and the battery's dead when you're on your way to church. He knows that the details of your life are frustrating. And so if he is able to help with those small details, he certainly can help with the larger ones. In fact, we can reverse that to say often we trust God with our eternal salvation. We don't trust him with the small issues of our life, thinking that we somehow have to solve those ourselves. But here we see that God has promised. He's sent. He's done all these things. He is the one that also spares us or keeps us. Notice at the end of verse 8 that um, he will send his angel before you. It's very interesting. Abraham was in the presence of God and angels, right? Do you remember at the beginning of uh, the, the uh, passage on Sodom and Gomorrah that God uh, appeared to him and there was angels with him and the angels, remember, uh, departed from there and God continued to talk with Abraham, but the two angels went down into Sodom and ultimately brought destruction and delivered Lot and his family. Remember that? That we see in the passages of Scripture that angels can appear in human form. And so we see this, that in the context of this, Abraham believes that God is able to send his messengers to help his servant accomplish this task. And for you dads out there, this is a great word of encouragement that God himself will 
provide spouses for your children. So for the fathers, for you children, for you grandparents, trust the Lord that he is able to do this in the midst of seeing the context of this redemptive plan of God. And so he will send his angel before you. You shall take a wife for my son from there. Notice his, uh, in, uh, his, his faith there. That this is how it should be done. You shall take a wife for my son there. There's a sense of prophecy as well that we know that Abraham was seen as a prophet as well. So we know that the servant listens because in the following passage he follows through. But uh, for now, let's move on to our next point. Look at verse 8. There's a contingency plan or an allowance in the midst of this uh, so-called uh, agreement. It says, but if the woman is not willing to follow you, so this goes back to uh, verse, um, uh, uh, verse uh, 2 and 3, where they bring up this issue of, well, what, what about the young woman? What if she's is not willing to? He says, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the very main thing is that the uh, that the son would not be t- that Isaac wouldn't be taken uh, to uh, this land, but ultimately would um, uh, the servant would go and get her. So the contingency plan is, hey, maybe a woman is unwilling, and I find that interesting that in the context of this plan, that um, that it's it's made clear that this this woman may be unwilling under the circumstances, and that's huge. You've got to hang on to that because we'll see that in the rest of the chapter, because not only does Rebecca's family struggle with this, but she herself struggles with it, and her own faith has to be um, uh, put towards the Lord in order for her to follow suit. Think about how scary that would be, fathers, to have someone show up and say this, and while it seems very good and it seems very of the Lord, to, to actually let your daughter go in this way, let alone... For you young ladies, can you imagine someone showing up and with a bunch of camels and, uh, and saying, hey, you're, you're to come with me. God sent me uh, to take you to your new husband. Let alone the fear of marrying somebody you've never seen before. That's kind of freaky in our day and age, isn't it? But the, the beauty of what God is doing, that we're trusting God ultimately in this. And Abraham is completely right out there talking about even the things that could go wrong. So uh, we see that there is an allowance in the midst of this uh, promise that he is making to help uh, the servant, who we think is uh, Eliezer, to be successful. So then let's look at this final agreement here, and then we'll make some application. Look at verse 9. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham as master, and he swore to him concerning this matter. In other words, I promise to do this. I won't take a, uh, a wife from the Canaanites, and I will go to your land. I won't take Isaac, and I will bring her back. If she doesn't want to come, then I will return, and I'm released from the oath, and everything's good. So we understand the plan here. But I think in the midst of this, we want to pause here, and this is one of the reasons that I want to separate this from the next section of this text, is to really see that God leads us to trust him in all these details. And that Abraham was trusting the Lord to provide a spouse for his son. 
that ultimately would continue on the, uh, the, the crimson thread of redemption through his posterity. That the promise was going to go through Isaac. He knew this. He watched God spare him on Mount Moriah. He knew that Abraham would eventually have to have a wife. But he's trusting God that he is able to do this. And so, while it seems that all the odds are against him, it seems impossible, this is something that Abraham has crossed over before. It seems impossible to go to a land and dwell amongst people that you've never been before. It's hard to trust God when your wife is barren, but he says you're going to have a promised seed. And he tries to bring Hagar into this situation, and that was his own lack of faith. All the way to God testing him to sacrifice his son. So Abraham is learning and building upon all that God has taught him. So he is confident at this point in his old age that God is able to do for him what he cannot do for himself. What does that come to us, to you and to me? Well, first of all, for you that don't know the Lord, if you are listening to this this morning, on very basic level, God is calling you to repentance and faith. God is calling you to trust him to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And what is it that you can't do for yourself? You are lost in your sin, and you can't get out. And the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. That is something that should bring great wrath to your soul, that should torment you day and night until you get the clarity of what God tells us in his great gospel, that he died for you, that he took your sin upon himself on the cross, that he died, but the same God that died rose again. And he's given you hope of not just your sin being separated from you, but you can be reconciled to God and dwell with him forever. He is able to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. For the rest of us as believers, what is it that we're not trusting God in currently? Surely, maybe it's not something as big as a spouse for your uh, loved ones or a spouse for your children, although that is a big one for me, uh, one outside of my own children's salvation. One of the greatest anxieties of my heart is, God, I trusted you to have a large family. I trust you to provide for them every day. I trust for you to save them, but it's a whole other thing to trust him for that he will, he will bring seven daughters-in-law and a godly son-in-law. That is like my prayer right now, that God is able to do the impossible. And so big-time application to my soul as well. But that's just one thing. I think there's many applications here as we look at Abraham's faith. What is it for you? What is it that God is calling you to trust him in, in those details that are aggravating and rubbing against your soul? It might be a spouse or your own children. Maybe for you teenagers, you seniors that are about to graduate, maybe it's, what, what does God have for me next? It's driving me nuts. God, why don't you just pop out of the clouds and tell me what to do? Maybe you're struggling with decisions. Maybe you're struggling with wisdom for buying or selling a house, moving. Maybe you're struggling like Abraham was and finishing well in his old age. Maybe there's future anxieties about the market or about the future of our country. Maybe you have anxieties about uh, even God's promises being fulfilled in you, that God is able to keep you to make you victorious over the sins that you feel are ensnaring you. 
Maybe you're trusting your own experience rather than God's promises. Whatever it might be for you, take encouragement from Abraham. Ultimately, God provided for him all the way through his life. He protected him. He preserved him. He was constantly promising him. He delivered him. He delivered his son. He's given him solace even after the death of his wife. You see these issues and, and um, the, the, the journey of Abraham's physical life that throughout it, you can see why the author of Hebrews writes that he was a man of faith. He trusted God for something that was not yet. How are you doing in trusting the Lord? It seems like a very basic thing, but yet in the context of this, I can't help but see how God would use His great Holy Spirit to convict us of areas where we tend to push forward and just make decisions that are really uh, signs of unbelief rather than trusting Him with detailed decisions that could have catastrophic effects in our lives. And so, ask the Lord to help you there to apply this text well, that we would trust God like Abraham trusted God in this particular area, but in multiple areas of our life. I close by uh, reading a poem from Amy Carmichael, uh, a famous missionary to India uh, who started um, uh, foundations for children and orphanages. She said this, Strength of my heart, I need not fail, not mind to fear, but to obey. With such a leader, who could quail? Thou art as thou wert yesterday. Strength of my heart, I rest in thee. Fulfill thy purposes through me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a passage like this. Uh, almost exciting to see the next step in your sovereign plan in Abraham's life. And while we can simply peek ahead and look at the next chapter to see what happens, um, it wasn't so for Abraham. He had to live it. And Lord, your word tells us that you give us the examples of the Old Testament for our own faith. But Abraham sure wasn't living in 2023. And he, like us, we cannot see tomorrow. And Lord, there's many things that concern our hearts here at the holiday season. There's many things that would weigh us down or cause us to fear or cause us to doubt that, God, would you help us, like Abraham, to trust you and fully assured of your promises that you will lead us through them and help us. Father, we pray that you would uh, use us in this generation to draw many to yourself. And, Lord, that you would not just get glory from the big accomplishments of our lives, but for the small faith-filled decisions that are knitted together by your sovereign hand over the course of our lives that will speak of amazing things, of your faithfulness in our lives. And would you get the glory from those, and may we find our everlasting treasure in you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.